Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So the topic for today is supposed to be about feeding the hungry. And indeed, in the scriptures that have been read in Psalm 34 and John 6, both have a good deal to do with food. The problem is that neither text has anything to do with our feeding the hungry. Instead, both texts focus on someone who is feeding us, indeed on our eating what he has prepared. In the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with nothing but five barley loaves and two fish. This is the one miracle of Jesus that is recounted in all four of the Gospels. Clearly, the authors of the New Testament wanted us to know that Jesus fed people. Yes, he taught them, he healed them, he even preached to them, but feeding was central to his ministry. Indeed, at the climax of his passion, he takes bread and breaks it and gives it to his disciples and tells them he is feeding them with his own life. So here he feeds the 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish. And it's interesting to note the response to this miracle. In chapter 6, there are really two main responses. The first is, perhaps not surprisingly, to politicize it. The man just fed 5,000 people with nothing but five barley loaves and two fish. Wow! If he can do that, think what that would mean for the hungry people in this world. Think what it would mean for our own people. A person who can do that ought to be in charge of things. Ought to be king. Perhaps the proper response to this sign is to, is to make him king. Just about the time the people had come to that decision, Jesus eludes them, resisting their efforts, ignores them, and makes himself scarce. He shows massive indifference to this political solution and retreats to a mountain, we read, by himself. There's an echo of this story in the Synoptic Gospels where Satan tests Jesus in the wilderness, telling him that if he's really the Son of God, all he has to do is turn stones into bread and everyone will follow him. And on that occasion too, Jesus resists the temptation, saying bread alone is not what gives life to the world. Here in the Gospel of John, he elaborates telling his disciples that the only reason the people wished to make him king was because their bellies were full. They missed something. They missed the sign. They thought the bread was the main thing and failed to see it as the sign that it was. It was an important sign, a sign of something else but it was only a sign. John's Gospel is sometimes called the book of signs, and these signs all point away from themselves to Jesus, and often they cause a good deal of confusion. 
He provides bread to the 5,000 only to say, I am the bread of life. He proves a good shepherd to his people only to claim, I am the good shepherd. He opens the door to everlasting life to say, I am the door. He walks with his disciples, teaching them, living with them to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He raises Lazarus from the dead only to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Here the sign is bread, and we're intended to see the sign, but not worship it but to see the one to whom the sign points. That brings us to the second response, one that is not political so much as it is skeptical and almost despairing. This response is not from the crowd, but from those of Jesus' own people who knew him well. What does he mean, he's the bread of life, that he came down from heaven to feed a hungry world? We know who this guy is. He didn't come from heaven, he came from Nazareth. His father's Joseph, his mother's Mary. He's nothing special. In fact, he needs to get over himself. If he keeps talking about the bread of life, maybe he's even being blasphemous. He's best ignored. Two responses. One seeking to turn Jesus into a kind of cause. The other belittling him hoping he'll just go away. One enthusiastically embracing the political, the other content with its own indifference and perhaps content with its own comforts. Often in John's Gospel, the people or the disciples or the scribes and Pharisees, they see something in Jesus that they can latch on to. They think that's what he's talking about. And then he has to explain to them they've missed the point entirely and need to look in a different direction. Yes, he can feed the masses, but the gift is not merely the bread. Yes, he is the bread of life, nothing less. But what that means and what it is to be the bread that comes down from heaven, what it means to feed a hungry world, is not a conjurer's trick or some small-town show, nor is it something to be yawned at and dismissed. What is on offer here is hope. The enemy here is death. The danger is not that we'll starve from not having enough things. It's more serious than that. The danger is that we're already starving despite the many things we have for lack of hope, that we're living malnourished lives of hopelessness, and that death stalks us, not as some alien, frightening creature, but as a kind of slow despair about life that creeps into our hearts and tempts us, draws us even into a quiet, even comfortable darkness. I'm not a big fan of Henry David Thoreau, 
But I think he was right when he observed that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. I think that desperation is underneath much of what we sense today. Of the two responses to Jesus in John 6, one almost admires those who want to make him king. At least they saw something in him that was special, something that stirred the heart, that was indeed miraculous. Those who complained that he was only Joseph's boy did not seem to have even the energy to hope They were not able even to be wrong. Jesus' work of turning himself into food for us suggests not only that we are starving, even as we stuff ourselves with other things, but that our world is starving too and is in fact become a kind of lonely place. There's something wonderful about that scene of 5,000 people on the hillside sitting on the grass eating bread and fish together. Something delightful about a great meal together. If you've seen the movie Babette's Feast, you know what an unexpected gift it is to share such a meal with old and new friends. If you've ever seen Renoir's painting of the luncheon of the boating party, you can almost feel the delight that people are taking that afternoon and each other in that life together. Like many of you here, my wife and I participate in this church's contribution to the Meals on Wheels program here in Georgetown. My wife dragged me into this effort. I thought I had more important things to do like figuring out how the Astros can hit with men on base. Anyway, I go. And it's true that we take food, nourishing food, to all sorts of people. But what I've noticed after a while is that as important as the food is, and it is very important, the gift is the human contact, the touch, When we ring the doorbell of some ancient lady sitting in her government-sponsored apartment, we're going to be the biggest thing that happens to that woman that day. We may not be the bread of life, but we are a sign of his nourishing presence, a human touch, a meal that claims we're not alone in this world. And in truth, it's not a difficult chore. Sometimes one, even in the midst of it, gets a glimpse of how bread can embody both memory and hope. Mr. Lopez, not his real name, lives by himself in a nice neighborhood, but in an old and run-down house that needs serious attention. He sits every day on his front porch, waiting for us to come by. His wife died several years ago. When I come with a tray of food, he always greets me and calls me young man, which is partly why I'm devoted to him. (laughs) The other day, my wife and I were delivering, and we had our granddaughter with us, and she was helping us. 
When we got to Mr. Lopez's house, my granddaughter and I went up to the door and he greeted us both and we gave him the tray of food. But then he told us to stay for a moment and he disappeared into the back of his house only to return with two paintings, an eight by 12 oil on canvas and a much smaller one, which he gave to my granddaughter. They were the work of his wife and were in his words, impressionistic. They were lovely sketches of flowers framing a window on their house. His wife had painted these some years ago and he wanted us to have them. They were beautiful. Now my question to you this morning is, who was giving bread to whom that day? Who was sharing hope in this world for the nourishment of life? Who had heard of something called the bread of life and wanted neither to politicize it or dismiss it, but merely to share it with another person. The painting by Mrs. Lopez sits over my left shoulder in my study at home. For me, it is also a sign, only a sign, but it is a sign that points me to the one who is the bread of life and who gives life and hope and great beauty to this world every day. I don't care so much about the virtue of being a good sheep, and I don't want to try to convince people not to be bad goats. Truth is, I suspect that sheep and goats are pretty well mixed up in all of us. In any case, I would rather just sit at table with one who insists on feeding sheep and goats out of his own life. And I suspect that eating hope like that in the bread he gives will enable us all to do extraordinary things, not least to learn how to love our neighbors. For he will not feed us apart from them but the gift will be to be in his company and with all whom he calls and to be found in his service. The last verse of the hymn we just sang reminds us of this. Here might I stay and sing. No story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.